I think I think we're on air. Hi, Morton. Hi, how's it going? Hi, Richard. Very good. And yourself? Yeah, yeah, all good, all good. Good to um, good to see you. And um, just so people know, where where are you? Uh, where are you sort of coming in from? I'm coming in from uh, Aarhus, or just north of Aarhus, which is a small city in Denmark. Well, Denmark-wise, it's the second largest, but that doesn't say a lot. Um, so a, a small city um, called the, the smallest big city in the world, since we do have a bit of cultural life and a lot of other stuff. Yeah, and and you Look, and looking out, there's based. a bit snow as it is. You've had a sprinkling of snow. Ah, hmm. yeah. First this year. Yeah. What about nice. yourself? No, well, it's, I'm down near Brighton, um, and it's a bit frosty this morning. But they did threaten snow, but we haven't had any. We did. We had a bit of a dump a few weeks ago, which always causes mass chaos. And I guess, you know, people from Scandinavia, I see you sort of write the wry smile. And I know you know the UK well, but the wry smile of, you know, we get some snow and, and everything kind of grinds to a, to a halt. Whereas to you guys, it's just like, well, hey, this is this is the way it is. Yeah, I think that that might go for the Norwegians and the Swedes. We we're still surprised every time there's a sprinkle of snow as well. So particularly on, on public transportation. Is um is that like a childlike surprise, a sort of a glee, a kind of open the windows and ah? Yeah, we not the sprinkles, but if you get that, you know, wake up and it's truly white in the morning, does you know butterflies start to spring up and like should I put on my gloves and go out and toss a snowball or whatever? Nice. Yeah, nice. I still get excited about snow, <laughs> although I Good. do do appreciate the heat, but sitting inside or just going outside for a brief moment, coming back in and have a hot chocolate or something mm. really lovely yeah now that's now we're talking about and i'm probably going to pronounce this wrong higa huga higa huga 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 yeah that's it Huger. exactly yeah yeah I mean, like. I mean, when, when you think about that word i mean what what does that do to you inside well essentially it gets you fat doesn't it <laughs> There's a there's a combination of of uh, sitting together, chatting and eating that is combined into the word, at least the way I see it. So hygge is so I, I think the direct translation would be something like coziness, right? But but you would everyone knows what it is, but I think everyone has their own definition of it. Um, unlike many other things uh, or maybe just like any other thing, I don't know. Yeah, well, you're getting me thinking there, because um, obviously the the uh, one of our commonalities is is pain, and um, immediately I was then thinking, okay, yeah, you know, huga. Everyone's got their own sort of version of it, and and I kind of wonder if because there, there are a lot of books came out over here and probably all over the world, you know, describing how you can do it, and I just wonder if you actually can do it anywhere other than where you are you know really can you really do it or is it specific to where you are um no i it's not but i you know you you have to feel comfortable so if if i go and visit my mate tim in london in london or now he's down in kent then i could definitely feel the hooker down there because i feel comfortable i, I love being with the people uh, i like being in the surroundings we have a similar sort of approach to you know, you can put your feet up in the couch and, and we want a cold beer or whatever. 
so so as long as the context is there and and I think it's at least to me it's more about the people I meet than yeah. than the place but but the context does matter yeah yeah Again, it and, sounds and I guess like we're talking about pain you. doesn't it yeah well, yeah, and that that's that that was what kind of kind of struck me. And and Tim, you refer to there, Tim Tim Beams. Um, I was yep. chatting to him yesterday, as as you know. Um, we're all kind of in the same the same field, trying to you know do our thing and um, and sort of joining it up in in this this kind of way. But but before we kind of get into the 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 pain stuff, um, I mean, tell me tell me. I, I actually I don't know. I don't know how you got into into pain. And I'm assuming before you got into pain, you got into to physio and they're not the same. And maybe there was no. stuff before that. So how, how did it all begin for you? Um, well, yeah, I, uh, I, I always had a always had an interest in. Dealing with people uh, in one way or the other. <clears throat> and then I uh, got into physio school back when it was a uh, uh, an education without a degree, so there was no bachelor's degree, there was nothing. Um, I did that, I was very happy. I started to to train as a manual therapist, did that, was very happy. I could, you know, I could fix people. I love that mm. bit. Uh, at some point I realized that maybe I couldn't fix them. And uh, a, a lovely person I know gave me a book that was just, just recently uh, came to Denmark at that point, I think this is 2005 or something, um, book called Explain Pain. Right. And and as you know, that that was the starting point for many of us. Um, so I started to go about listening to to Dave and and eventually Loz as well. And I went to this course in in Oxford. You might have been as well, where um, where where Mick Mick Thacker and Lorimer and Dave gave a shared course, which I think would have been maybe in two thousand and six seven ish, uh, and I was hooked. It was it was just it sounded like that's the way I want to go. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand it. I started teaching for the Noi group, so doing the Explain Pain courses. Uh, that's where I met Tim. And and uh, apparently he knew a lot of the stuff that I was wondering. So is this really true? Why am I just saying it? So I would be saying this when I gave courses because I heard it, you know, I was you were trained, you you read the book. So you, you're giving sort of the same explanation on to, to participants. Um, but Tim somehow knew stuff that was outside of that. And it turns out that he was doing the MSc program at King's where Mick was leading it, um, which you, you've been doing as well. So the 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 course there was really the, the turning point for me, wasn't it? Where I, I stopped looking into being a, a physio as per se, you know, the old type physio was fixing things and then looking more and more into the philosophy and and the science behind pain and uh, and it just took me by storm i was i was so thrilled by it that when i uh, when i stopped the the master's program i went back to the clinic i've been a clinician since 1999 went back to the clinic but more and more i wanted to do some academic work and in uh, 2015 i uh, got a fully funded phd doing um, basic science, so neuroscience in relations to pain. So we were testing out healthy human beings to see if we could initiate pain and then modulate it, studying the descending modulatory system, um, which was uh, there were there were tough years. It's really tough coming as a clinician 
without any sort of really strong scientific background, never been to the labs, and then starting to do all of that work. But it was also a very, very steep learning curve. Um, I'm very happy for the people I met there and I still work. I'm now an associate professor at Auburn University where I did the PhD as well. But instead of doing it with the uh, sense of neuroplasticity and pain where I did my PhD, I'm now affiliated with the um, implementation part. So it's called Moscow Skeletal Health and Implementation Group. We're looking into uh, what we call the pain path. So how, how do people with pain get more swift and better through the system? So how can we uh, initiate early assessments? How can we avoid delayed or unnecessary treatments? So this whole pathway, how can we do that? And, and we come from that uh, from many different perspectives. So people with, with communication backgrounds, people with psychology backgrounds, and we've, we've actually just, just this month, we've started, uh, we've invited a, a visiting professor down, who, who I'm sure you know, Lance McCracken. So yeah. he'll be with us for the next three or four months, trying to, to support us in developing new methods to study uh, on, a, on an individual basis. How do people change? Um, so it's called single case experimental designs. It's it's sort of um, a single case. So you study one person, and you rather than having many people where you get a few data points, you have a few people, but you get many data points. And then we sort of want to develop that field and see where where that can take us, and maybe that can show us that some treatments are actually effective. So thinking of it, so I'm doing that part time. Let me just say that first. I'm doing that part time. And then I yeah. still see patients uh, and I do a lot of teaching and writing and all of that in, in the rest of my time. But one of the things that the RCT, the randomized controlled trial really does is it looks at a group and it gives you a mean score. So do the majority of the people in the group seem to change based on statistics, uh, which has a lot of validity. But it doesn't show who benefits from the treatment. So the single case experimental design studies are trying to look at that from a different angle. So looking at one person, it's been around in pain for many, many years. So there's an old study by uh, Johan Flain and, and um, oh, sorry, I can't remember all the authors, but they, they looked at graded exposure where people were exposed to the things that were afraid of and combined that or compared that to just active engagement in doing physical activities. Um, uh, and, and, and it shows that when you're doing the things that you want to do, you see a change in the score. So they could look at pain scores, or they could look at um, activity scores, or they could look at fear avoidance behavior scores. And then you see when they are exposed to the things they're afraid of, the scores change. When they just do activity, they don't change. And you can see that on an individual basis. So there's, there's a lot of things gone through that method since, and it's still not a completely developed method. There will be a review out in, in the European Journal of Pain, um, hopefully sometime this year, from uh, Lance McCracken, who is who's one of the forefront leaders in, in the field. Uh, so, so we're very much looking into that. That's mm -hmm. a long talk. And, and then on the university side, maybe I should say that as well. I, I teach uh, on the MSC um, musculoskeletal pain program we have. For, for physios at, at Auburn University. Yeah. Wow, I mean, that's that's a hell of a journey. 
um, a very cool one, a very necessary one, because pain being such a huge, particularly chronic pain being a huge problem across the across the globe. Did did you ever imagine that you'd be in this position doing what you're doing now? Never. I mean, I think maybe, maybe I'm getting tired of hearing that because I think that's everyone's story. But it, when I was when I was, you know, I, I was struggling. Um, the only thing I sort of really excelled us at was, was language. I could speak languages. That's the only thing I could. Um, so I never imagined I'd be doing anything scientific, anything that needs, you know, structure, any of that. But I guess interest drives you to do many things, and and uh, and it just I just got the academic bug, and and then once you know you want to learn it, it's much more, you know, there's enthusiasm, uh, you're motivated, all of that. So I, I never imagined I could do any of that, but I'm, I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's clear. You you know you have a, a passion and a, and a real purpose. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you know, as you said, other people have this experience in you know because school and education systems are often very confining. You're told what you've got to learn. You know, you're growing up. Or there's all that stuff going on. And, um, and, and you know, if we chatted to some of your teachers and, uh, you know, in this, oh, well, Morton one day is going to end up, a, you know, a, a top academic. They're going to be like, what? And, you know, I think my teacher yeah. would be laughing at, at what I'm doing as well. And, and um, because it's just totally different. But as you said, when you find something, you know, these these switches and you 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 must have found something then. That, that turned you towards physio in the first instance. So that, that sounds like that was the first turning point. What what happened there? Um, I, I had a bit of backache. I remember the, the specifics, actually. It's uh, it's one of the things that I remember very clearly. And uh, I had backache. I was I was in the service, uh, so military service at the point. And um, I had backache, so I went up to the physio. And whilst I was getting you know my bag robbed, whatever he did, um, I uh, I was just chatting, you know, loosely to him, and I said I always was a bit fascinated about the body, and I was thinking about maybe, you know, I wanted to study history when I came out. I wanted to go to university and study history, maybe philosophy. Um, wasn't clear of that, uh, and then I said I want to do some of these like weekend courses where you could do like whatever, reflex therapy or whatever you can do on a weekend course, right? And he said why why not go that direction? Why not be a physio? I was like physio is higher. Never even thought of that. So I spent a bit of time thinking, I finding out what it was, and and it turns out that I had the merits, so I could get in. Um, at that point, you didn't have to have grades; you were admitted by by your curriculum. So I I submitted my uh, my application, and and I was admitted, very luckily, I would say. I. Uh, that was that was quite interesting. Uh, never never thought I'd go that way though. Uh, all day I, I've always been fascinated by body and health, and I've been doing martial arts for a few decades. So I that that was sort of my lead into the body, wasn't it? And uh, how long were you in the military for? Uh, I was I was there for I was I was actually there for quite a few few years. Um, I was uh, I was in intelligence services, so I was I was there for a few years. Okay, and that, that was so you went to school, did school, finished school at eighteen. Uh, yeah, yeah, roughly. 
Um, and then straight into the military, or no? Then I then I went. So so I did what what we would call gymnasium, but only I did the the business gymnasium. I thought I was going that direction. My family was working in tradecraft and all of that, so I figured that would be my trajectory as well. Um, and then after that, I went to the military. Um, I was drafted, so I had to go. But there was a there was an opportunity if if you applied for it. You could you could go straight into being uh, trained as an officer, so mm -hmm. I went into to do that, and then you know you do that for a few years, and then you you are you are put in a position, and and I was I, I was working in in the intelligence services there for a few years afterwards. Yeah, which I guess you can't talk about. Well, it, it, yeah, well, I can't, but it's not interesting. <laughs> it, it, I wasn't doing any any like W seven. <laughs> 007 work or anything. It was it was really mine. I was just you know piss ant on the floor. But <laughs> uh, I'm kind of into spies at the moment. I'm having a bit of a spy time, um, watching a few spy things. So uh, um, maybe we'll chat about that. Have you, have that you, some, some have you followed what happened? Uh, so in Denmark, we had the, the the military spy chief. He was arrested for sharing uh, information, and, and he's accused of. Of I think anything you you can come to, but but even you know being a, a traitor to the country, wow. um, and and it's 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 a it's either a huge scandal or there's something I don't understand. So it's it's really interesting. There's a lot going on. So spies are big here in Denmark at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's trending in in Denmark. But I think the problem is when you watch these spy things. I've been watching Slow Horses with Gary Oldman, and then if you're on on Apple TV, um, you you watch this stuff, and then you get very suspicious about your own intelligence services um, and what they what they get up to, because you're kind of imagining that although these are sort of stories, they're, they're kind of based on on something. Um, yeah. So so <laughs> I always think who. Who would benefit from looking over my shoulder? I mean, even if if someone was in my my phone at the moment and they would see us chatting, well, they can they could just go online and download it afterwards. So if, anyway, so yeah, I, yeah, I don't know, but definitely we we could be monitored much more than we are aware mm -hmm. on a daily basis. I'm sure of that. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely being monitored. But I, I'm just wondering how. You know, that, that time um, in the middle of the officer training and then your time in intelligence, what kind, I mean, you would have taught some, been taught some interesting things there. You would have developed some interesting skills around people and nah. reading people in situations, do you think? No, no, no. That's, I guess that's only if you were truly in, you know, in, in the service where you're doing it on the cover. So it's called intelligence. Basically what it is, is it's just collecting information that has been passed through the system. And obviously you have a bit of clearance, but it, it's nothing. I mean, the only sort of actiony thing I ever was part of was I was I was in the, I was listening to, to the chatter and, and following up, I was collecting the chatter that happened uh, during, during the Iraqi war. Um, so you're sitting in the war room and collecting information, but it's, it's I mean, it, it sounds, interesting but if you did a movie about it it would absolutely be a fiasco it's so boring <laughs> um so don't 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 think that just because it's intelligence it, it's exciting
No, no, unfortunately. But I would say, having been teaching for many years, learns you a lot about people. Um, so the, right. the teaching, uh, being engaged with people, telling, explaining how to do, you know, bodily exercises. Uh, so for martial arts, for instance, which I've been doing for many years, as I said that I was teaching that for many, many years and just learning how to communicate with people, um, make them reflect on how their body works. That's That's been an interesting journey. I think I learned much more from that than anything I would ever learn in the military. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps even more than physio training, I'm wondering. You know, within the, because uh, I don't know what your kind of training was was like, but that, that kind of real detailed understanding of, of movement, you know, relating to the embodied mind, stuff that we're very familiar with now, but maybe back then we hadn't even heard of. Um, but I would imagine that martial arts would have been much closer to that way of thinking back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mine, the, the thing I did was strongly associated with Zen Buddhism, uh, which is sort of a very clear trajectory of what we are doing now as well. We're looking, you know, supporting people in finding themselves. It was something like mindfulness is, is straight out of the Zen Buddhistic book, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you're right that we didn't focus as much on that as we do now. Um, but I remember having done that. So that was that was my approach to feeling and being, you know, in your body when you move and understanding that other people have other bodies and they're not the same. And then coming into physio school and learning about anatomy, I remember getting a system where you could describe precisely what is going on. That was a revolution. So, so really combining that sense of self with, you could say, basic science. Uh, that that was uh, quite a quite a journey for me. I love that bit, uh, being able to 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 explain what you really are looking at in a you know, in a more um, ordered fashion, you could say, or structured fashion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you bringing that that background into you know, particularly when you were training, and then maybe the early years of, of when you were were working. Um, and I mean, was was sort of meditation part of the the practice back? The you know, your own personal practice back then. Oh yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so you had you had that background which you were bringing into to the physio. I'm just interested if you ever met any kind of resistance, um, or were people quite open to to that way of thinking back then? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but you know, it's still twenty odd years, isn't well, it? Twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, well, it's more than twenty five since I started, wasn't it? So, yeah. um, it, it it wasn't something that it, it wasn't considered real therapy. It's something you could do, and and it will still be on a spectrum of body and mind. So you would be doing that for your mind, but the real thing that was wrong with you was in your body. So you had to learn manual therapy. Um, I mean, you you would have been to school around the same time. I mean, you know, exercise wasn't even a thing at that point. You, you learned exercises, but doing strengthening and conditioning training was not part of the program in any way. We, we'd never thought of it as therapy. Uh, it wasn't until whatever, 2010 or something, where exercise as medicine started. And, and we really realized that exercise was part of, you know, being healthy. Back then it was about, you know, it's more about bodybuilding if you did 
um, strengthening training, which obviously yeah. I haven't been doing, but I, I know people were doing it. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, it was the, it was the same here. So before I did physio, I did a, a degree in sport. Around that working with the active population, which was set up by a physio who, who realized, right, there's a massive gap here. We've got all these physios giving advice on exercise, but they got no background in it unless they've done their own stuff and additional stuff, which obviously some had. Um, but the majority didn't, didn't have a clue about exercise prescription. They were just kind of making it up. 10 by 3, you yeah. know, all that. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. Where's that coming from? Um, exactly. So, so yeah, that, that has been a, a really important change um, because there's all these assumptions made that physios know about exercise. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, uh, I mean, that's, that's been one of the most important journeys we've been on. Uh, alongside, I would say, of course, with the, the pain journey, um, coming to to new understandings of what pain is, and maybe particularly what we can do about it. Uh, I think you and I would be on the same page there, but I, very, very sort of bluntly speaking, you could say that I thought I could change people's pain, whereas I now realise that, or I believe, that I can't. I mean they can change their pain and I can be part of that process. But really, I, I don't know how to change it. In order to, to really make change to someone, you would have to be either a surgeon or use pharmacological treatment. And I do neither. So so the, the chances that I, I leave any changes in um, that the way I can do it is obviously by making them behave, change, maybe even think differently afterwards, if if you conceive that as a biological change. Um, <clears throat> I, there was just a paper out this morning uh, from from Oval University, actually, um, Rocco, one of our colleagues up there, and Lars Aaron Nielsen, they looked at um, microRNA changes after a brief stimulus, five minutes of painful stimulus, and they can detect changes on a microRNA level. So obviously you can change things, but what we are changing in our therapy is probably very blunt uh, and, and very crude. So you're doing something, just like exercise, you're doing something to an organism that is so complex that, I mean, you cannot even compare it to, to you know, playing pool where you have one white ball and you hit it into a, you know, a bulk of other balls and, and, and you are sort of, supposed to predict where every ball goes that's just not going to happen is it and then the body is going to be massively more complex than that so so we need to understand and i think that's what neuroscience helps us do is to understand the boundaries the the limitations or the principles of how that works like you would have gravity in natural forces uh, or natural sciences i think there are similar to the human based on what we know about neuroscience, for instance, the descending modulatory system, how your your nervous system can change signals in your nervous system that, that do to some degree relate to pain. I understand the concept is that you can change it from zero to 100%, but in reality, you don't. So in reality, maybe you, you work, let's say 15, 20%. And, and I guess that's also why we see 
similar effect sizes from similar treatments. So you do manual therapy, you can combine it all, you can look at it uh, compared to each other, and you see small effect sizes, small to moderate effect sizes, equivalent of maybe between two and four on a zero to 10 scale on short term, right? Uh, or you can do exercises and you see the same, or you can do hypnotherapy, or you can do pain neurobiology education, and you see similar changes. I think that reflects, at least that's how I perceive it, that reflects the restrictions that we are a part of uh, being, being in an organized manner. So we have this incredibly complex uh, organism, which we call a body, but in order for it not to disintegrate and just become nothing or, or, or go in too many different directions, you have to sort of keep it in in play and and keep things in control. And I think that's what neuroscience or basic science is helping us understand. Yeah, those kind of parameters that we can we can work to. As you said, you know, change from any given practice, exercise, intervention um, is is just a step. It's n it's never the end result, and and it seems that. You know, people want an end result. I want to be better, and change is a process. Again, not not a point in in time. And and it's interesting that first bit that you were talking about. You know, the you know, can we change people? Um, and and when you were saying that inside, I was going, oh yeah, great, because normally people say this, and it's not popular, I don't think, because it, because it's the reality. We 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 don't change. I mean, I I actually argue that we don't really even treat pain. Um, I mean, we can get into that if if you want, but but it's 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 more about creating the conditions. So this this comes a bit more from the the Zen or Buddhist philosophy that with someone, as you were saying, we can create the conditions. If they're in pain, they're already in pain. There's nothing you can do about that. It's already happening. What you can do is create the conditions by doing da 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 whatever it is. Um, and if they keep doing those things, then they're going to be on a path. Those parameters that you were talking about, they're healthy parameters. So skills of being well, exercise, all that stuff, looking after yourself, self-care. And if you're staying within those parameters for long enough consistently, there's a very good chance that you're going to feel better than if you don't do that. Yeah. Does that kind yeah, of fit I, with what you're saying? That resonates very well. I would even I would even say there's you know the the other side of that is let's look at surgery for instance I I'm not I'm not in any way against surgery but I do think there are things you shouldn't surgerize on um, so if we use the same approach saying that the body is a controlled organism and that's the way it works then doing surgery to that organism is putting it out of control sometimes that's exactly what you need maybe it was out of control and you're supporting it to finding its way back. I, I think that's fair to say, let's say a, a fracture, uh, an open fracture of your shin, you, you definitely want some sort of surgery to help you there. Uh, it's unlikely to heal by itself. I don't think the body has the capacity to do that with the shin outside, uh, yeah. at least not put it back in place. But when, when you give surgery to people who are maybe already wobbly or their, their borders or that that what you were talking about, that balance they're finding, if that's already out of balance or out of homeostasis or whatever we call it, and then you add surgery to that, I don't think you're doing people a favor. Um, you could argue that that, you know, again, taking that perspective, I think that makes sense why you have to, to also always consider the risk and benefit before you do anything. So a good good example of this would be 
the the sort of now lesser commonly used approach, but still quite common approach where you say, if you're in pain and I have something that could help, you should try it. Um, essentially, that means that if you have back pain and nothing has helped, then you should have opioids or you should have surgery because it could help. Whereas I would argue that maybe maybe at some point we should stop trying to fix people and support them finding a way with the life they have. You could argue that's very Zen Buddhistic, so life is pain and all of that. But finding acceptance, you could use that word, that's a newer word, but it basically means the same. So you could find acceptance of where you are and try to make the best of that. Obviously, that's not something that you just do. I mean, monks would train themselves for years and years to learn that. And then we say to patients, um, go ahead and learn yourself to live with that pain because I have no clue how to do it. We would paraphrase it. We would say you need to learn to live with this, but it's idiotic. I think um, that's that's giving someone a task where they're definitely not ready. So so you need that support, and I think that's that's the role we could play is helping them to find the boundaries you were talking about, and and also advise and and help to to discuss the benefits and the risks of going outside of that, you know, your body's own, you know, ability to find its way back, whatever you call it. Yeah. I know it sounds so quite fluffy and I think it, it it is fluffy at the point, but I think there are things that could support this idea. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's kind of this this shift, isn't it, from the fixer, which essentially we've been trained in. I mean, I think it's slowly the idea of that is slowly changing. You know, people like Roger Kerry, you know, pioneering new ways of thinking about the undergrad training and, and such like. Um, but yeah, this this shift away from being the fixer to to being the guide to to being the encourager, the motivator. I tend to use the word coach to to umbrella all of those things um, where you're coming alongside someone um, and, and helping them on on that journey. Um, do you do you think um that that journey is about making things better or or just managing what's your kind of so feel from, on that from whose point of view from well, our from point the of view person, from, from the, the no from the, the, the yeah the person the person with the lived experience of of pain you know are we are we trying to help them have a better life um again from from the person's perspective this is one of the discussions I had with Lance um, this week, actually, is, is it realistic that we, through education, can support this patient in being better at utilising health care? So can, can we train uh, health literacy, for instance? Can we, can we support them in asking the right questions so that they are asking us something we can actually help them with? should I do surgery as opposed to do you think surgery could help? So could surgery help? The answer there would be yes, it could. In in almost any circumstance, surgery could help. It depends on, you know, the risk you're ready to take. Um, but should I do it is a completely different question. We can spend a lot of time you know, really give them a good answer to. Or, or maybe we need to to go into therapy straight away. I'm 
I'm not sure where we should, uh, again, I'm taking my own point of view here. So from the person's perspective, I think it's important that they, they know that we can't do everything so that they start to reflect on what do I need? And, and uh, obviously some people will be very good at saying this and they would, I argue, I would argue, get more and better help. And some people will ask for things that are more tricky, such as if you had had pain for five years and you say, I want the pain to go away. That's a really difficult task and chances are if people say, fine, go on the couch, they're taking a chance. They're not looking at statistics first um, and maybe it could help, but chances are that it won't. And then should you then as a person be understanding that you're also taking a chance, which is disappointment and lack of confidence in treatment, um, believes that your future can be better. So are you really to risk that by taking up another out of therapy that may not help you in any way and give you negative experience and expectations. Um, so yeah, I, I keep coming back to my own perspective. I'm not sure how to respond from a, from another person's perspective. Sorry. No, well, maybe we can't. Maybe we can't. I mean, I think that we can hear what people say, and obviously they come and they they want things to be better. Um, and some people's better will be, I want to be pain free. I want this to have gone away. And we have to have that conversation to to kind of get the expectations and reality aligned in, in that moment. I mean, no one knows the future. That's the, you know, so what was it going to be like in someone asked me the other day, what's it going to be like in in five, 10, 20 years? Oh, I said, I have no idea. I mean, no one knows. But 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 some people do tell others, oh, well, in five years, you're going to be this. In 10 years, you're going to be that. And obviously, they're using it based on their own experiences and maybe some data or, or whatever. But ultimately, you don't know. So it's so I guess it's trying to keep people open to possibility and say, well, look, these are feasible things you can do to to live your life in the best way right now, because this is the only moment. And if you do that and you're open to possibility, I think that things can improve for you in ways. Yeah. And and some people do actually benefit from long lasting pain. I mean, there, there's a range of studies. I mean, the, the most recent and probably the most popular study at the moment would be um, Yoni Usher's and Torvaga's study on pain reprocessing therapy, where, where a group of people with six months of back pain more than six out of ten four days a week so a sort of quite um, quite difficult group of people to manage on a statistical basis um, and they managed to to cure so reduce the pain to zero in in one third or more of the people on a i think it's a an eight-week program a six-week program um, where they insist that the reason for pain is changes in your brain and the therapy changes your brain. Um, so neither can be documented. So they are postulates or theories, if you like. Yeah. But still, the therapy helps. So the problem is, of course, you don't know who would benefit from that. And, and I would argue that maybe you can't necessarily say that it was the therapy. There could be a lot of other things going on, such as the communication and the uh, enthusiasm of, of the therapists, etc. So there's a range of things and I would I'd like to see it replicated as well. 
but 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 you've seen the same in you know cardiac surgery where where you had uh, angina pectoris surgery and it turns out that placebos are just as effective but still they remove 100% of symptoms in some people yeah yeah we need absolutely. to bear that in mind when we when we're being a bit negative about the possibilities of of managing a, a person managing the pain obviously yeah. there are people who benefit from being told what's wrong and then doing what they're being told. Um, I, I'm just not sure who it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? There, there seems to be, uh, you know, there is a way forward for some, you know, for people, but it's finding that, that you know, they've got to find that there's no one way. And, and it's interesting you brought up the, 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 um, the reprocessing because, I mean, undoubtedly those results are, are very good. I mean, it's in about 50 people, isn't it? So it's a small number of people with, with back pain, I believe. Is that right? No, I think, it's, I think it's at least 20 in each group. I think it might even be more. But anyways, it's... Um, they, they, I, I, <clears throat> I, I don't see the, the obvious statistical mistakes. Um, that's, that's my way of saying I can't see any, anything wrong in that study. I think it's a brilliant study. I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to discuss it both with Yoni and Tor, and and uh, I don't get it. I, I just don't understand why they have so big effect sizes. But I mean, results matter, and and their results speak. I guess the thing that is really interesting is that the placebo group and the treatment as usual group get a similar effect. That is that is quite unusual. Normally, what you would see is that treatment as usual has the worst or the least effect and then placebo has a similar effect or almost similar effect as the active group but in this case the active group are doing significantly better um, at, at, at anything I mean at, at all time points and and uh, and there's a, I think it's a six month follow-up and people are pain-free which is you know spectacular I mean imagine being one of those people who go to therapy who had pain for six months or more and you go to therapy and, and you meet this enthusiastic clinician and and your pain goes away i mean you would be blown away and you'd be telling all your mates about it wouldn't you that's very powerful you know the stories are very powerful and then that breeds expectation which we know is enormous in all of our experiences and, and perceptions so um but um well i mean what do you think of the term then you know pain reprocessing you know, essentially what it's saying is, is that you reprocess pain. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't want to, well, actually, I, I am probably completely against that. I mean, uh, we, we have a similar discussion here in Denmark with, with um, concussions, for instance. Are they brain injuries or aren't they? And I would argue they're not brain injuries because brain injuries is actually, that is the thing you don't have, a structural damage to your brain. It's the one thing you don't have. If you have a concussion you might have similar symptoms but you do not have that otherwise it would be a traumatic brain injury and then then this term mild traumatic brain injury has been introduced as you know as to say you have the symptoms you just don't have the structural damage well in sports medicine uh, you would have anything is a sports injury right but when yeah. you look at the majority of the people they have no injuries as in yeah. tissue injuries but they're still yeah. conceived as tissue injuries. And, and we thought that wasn't you know, a bad thing because they're just injured. They can't do their sport. That's how they define it. But really what we are telling them is that they're injured. And it turns out that that's what they hear. So they, they 
do say that my pain is my injury, but my injury is causing the pain. So you need to care for my injury. And if I have more pain, I can't do my sport. And there's some evidence pointing to the fact that maybe therapists are thinking that as well. So they would have people who could actually maybe be doing their sports, stay off the field because they're afraid of the pain, um, which is, how would you know? I mean, you're changing the pain. Does it have anything to do with the nervous system? Obviously. Are you doing anything specific to the nervous system? Absolutely not. Uh, I would argue you could do exactly the same with a different placebo. So if, if their placebo in that study was injection of saline. Uh, but if you had had, you know, um, mindfulness as placebo, um, uh, I, I would imagine the differences would have been less. So if you do something that you are engaged in and you believe in and you have an enthusiastic instructor or teacher, chances are that the differences wouldn't be as big. So, so I don't think that study suggests that pain reprocessing therapy works. I think it suggests that being with an enthusiastic therapist works. And honestly, I think that study is, is a really good reminder of what people like you and I and others who may, who may not have our fingers so much in the daily treatment of acute pain or early onset pain should remember, namely that our colleagues out in the clinics and in the hospitals and everywhere else, they're doing brilliant jobs in the majority of people. And the people that we see are the people that didn't go on that trajectory. So I yeah. think there's miracu miraculous curing happening every day in the clinics. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I truly believe that. But yeah. there are people who, who are, you know, resilient maybe to that. There's a lot of brilliant work, and and in the sports field as well. So when I go and talk to to the groups and and on on chronic pain in sports, so look, you know. The, the management of acute injuries and things and, and dealing with that, you know, it's brilliant, absolutely top draw. But actually the skill set and knowledge that, that you apply there isn't is just not appropriate for for the uh, for people who who are still struggling. You know, but how can we look how you know the ever question, how can we identify people earlier? Well, well maybe in some some cases, many cases, maybe you can't. Maybe it's very difficult to say. Because how many people do we see who have had a problem for six months, six years, 16 years, whatever? You know, they previous to things happening, their life looked, you know, not vastly different from the majority in the middle of the bell curve. Yes, everyone has traumas, some with big T's and little T's. Some come resilient from that, some don't. Some it, some have genetic stuff and it just pops up because of certain, you know, it's just immensely complex. And I think that, you know, working with people with, persistent pain chronic pain is 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 even more complex because you're getting to the heart of all of this this stuff which makes it very beautiful and fascinating but it, it is a huge challenge um yeah i just keep going i love what you're saying <coughs> i i, I really i really agree so um behind those yes yeah, so, so i guess um strictly speaking they're editorials um so they're peer-reviewed editorials um by uh, my colleague and and the professor of my department michael ratliff uh, 
he encouraged me to write this series of editorials for the JOSPT or to submit it as, as a suggestion to the JOSPT and and uh, we had a very fruitful debate with uh, Clyde and the editor-in-chief of the JOSPT and we decided on on trying to to come up with with uh, does the does the word pixie pixie book do you have that in English like a, so we have in Danish we have pixie books where when you start to read when I start to read when I was a you know young kid then you would have like these tiny books yeah. and they would tell a story in four pages oh, okay. um, so so it, it it's like that very short form but yeah. still you get the whole story you you of course there are things you don't get you don't get the nuances you don't get all of that outside of the mainstream but you do get the storyline even if it's on four pages um and that's the idea so we have 1500 words in an editorial and we need to tell the story of of something relevant so the first ones were a bit harder to come through and and uh, the reviewers were a bit harsh to say well, why why is it important to tell clinicians about um neurons and and receptors and the differences in types of receptors and and second messenger systems why is that relevant and then once we started getting into the sensitization so first the peripheral sensitization and then now the central sensitization which is the the one that recently came out and then we have a second one coming out in I, I reckon next month on central sensitization as well but where we discuss the different types of central sensitization right um so so the story now is that we we have these lines of editorials that gives clinicians an insight to the language that is used in neuroscience and neuroscience in in my opinion is the science that is the most at the forefront i would say of studying pain Obviously, we have no clue how neuroscience and pain relate. We do have clues, but we, we, we don't know exactly how does perception or consciousness relate to neuroscience. But it is the, the you know, the, the most widespread, most used um, basic research approach to studying the phenomenon of pain. And in doing so, of course, what we are really studying is is no deception, especially if we do it in animals uh, other than humans. But in humans, you are studying pain, but under the assumption that no deception leads to pain. Yeah. And, and that's given us a lot of insights. Obviously, it, it is unlikely to ever give us the full story because I believe there's more to pain than no deception. But having said that, no deception is an ideal trigger for pain. So I, I usually say that imagine you were to do a study with 100 people and you needed to get each of them to feel pain, but you couldn't touch them in any way. So you couldn't do anything sensory. How would you make them feel pain? And 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 you have to do the same thing to all 100 people. So people would say sleep deprivation. But again, maybe you're not feeling pain, spontaneous pain from sleep deprivation. You would be more responsive. deception is an ideal trigger for the sensation of pain or the experience of pain mm. but where, where we are now and where we should go is is still um, a long way I mean there's a long way to go but what we are trying to do with the series essentially is to build a bridge between where science is now and where clinicians are now so so it's uh, essentially a way 
to to teach. So again, at the university, when we do our our MSc um, program for for physios, the the editorial forms a basis of what we need to teach them about neuroscience in order for them to understand, for instance, low back pain. Um, and you say, how could you? Because it doesn't tell you what low back pain is. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think when you know when you know neuroscience, for instance, you know what it isn't. So you can identify sensitization when you see it, but you can also say this is not something that easily is explained by some of the principles that we usually see in neuroscience. So the pain you have, the true, the trueness of the pain or the experience of pain is different and it doesn't lend itself to be reduced to a single or a few mechanisms. And that makes me much more, yeah, so as a clinician, I would be much more, uh, I need to spend more time understanding you. What triggers it? What happens? What does it? Um, because the easier it is, imagine someone comes in with, with a broken leg again, a fracture. It's so easy to understand. You don't even have to consider the difference between nociception and pain because yeah. you know exactly what you need to do. But the further away the person in front of you gets from that picture, the more you need to sit down and listen to their story. So I see it almost as a continuum of understanding. So the basic understanding of acute pain, for instance, is, is really well explained with what we know about neuroscience. But the more we get into complex pain, the more you need to have the tools and skills to listen to and facilitate your person in front of you, the patient, to give you information. Uh, and, and still, I would use my understanding of the, the, the body, how it works, to rule out things such as serious pathologies and and commonalities, uh, early warnings to signals of, uh, you know, rheumatological diseases or whatever. So, so I think that's how we should use it. So more basic science helps us become better clinicians, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. You, often the start points taken from, um, you know, an, an injury moment um, or, or sometimes just a moment where the person goes, right, I need help now. I need to go and see someone. So they may have had, you know, times before where they felt pain. But for whatever reason, at that moment, they're like, no, I need uh, I need some help. How much emphasis do you put on, um, you know, how their systems have developed and evolved and what they've learned prior to that, that at that point that they do that sends them on a particular trajectory. Yeah, I, I, I try not to, to predict what goes on inside the body, hence I can't see it, I can't measure it. So it's, it's not something I could change either. That's the problem, isn't it? If I thought, again, talking about pain reprocessing, sorry to take a back turn here, but the reason I don't like the idea of pain reprocessing is because you can't really see measure it, see you measure it in any way. So you're just predicting or playing around with it, saying, I think that we are changing the way your brain works. Um, what you are really looking at is how the pain changes, not how the brain works. So why not just call it that? And I would say the same. I, I spend a lot of time listening to the story of my patients because I think there, there are many things in Again, coming back to this idea that we are all living as controlled homeostatic organisms. Um, so, so if 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 your history explains to me that you had knee pain and then it went away, and then you had shoulder pain and went away, and then you had headaches and it went away, and then your knee pain and your shoulder pain came and so, but it always comes and goes. 
then what should suggest that the current pain you're in should be any different? That's the question I would ask. Um, and I would ask that literally. And I would also question them about, so have you ever experienced, is it similar? Um, could I, with my knowledge, clear, clear my conscience uh, for, for serious pathologies? Could I, you know, avoid being suspicious of that? All of that. Um, and and then, you know, I, I, I spend a, so my answer is I spend a lot of time understanding what they have experienced before, but I don't try to predict what goes on in their system. Right. Okay. So it's, it's much more of the narrative you're interested in, which of course we access through asking and listening, which we and and I and do you feel that then puts a context? So you you've talked about you know the story of their pain, that maybe the story of their life, um, how their health has been, you know, not just this sort of list of, of things that have happened, but this is their their life story to to date. You you use that and then you can put some perspective to what they're experiencing now. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's so true. Um, and and especially, I like you point out that the context is because it doesn't have to be the pain that changes. It could be the context, and in that context, they experience life differently. Um, so let's say the pain is the same. If you ask how's your pain, it's four out of ten. It's always four out of ten. But sometimes I can be quite you know happy about my life, and sometimes I can be devastated. But the pain is still four out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. People say that, don't they? They 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 say, oh, my my pain is the same, and I always find that really interesting because, as we've already intimated, we we somewhat influenced by Buddhist thought and in, well certainly in you know impermanence. Can anything ever be the same? Yeah, that's a good question, and I you know obviously it can't, but then it always will. So depending on I guess the level you're looking at. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other I guess thing that, that I guess that the answer here would be uh, trying to be to answer it fully. I would say, in order to stay the same, you need to change, because you, as a as an organism, cannot stay the same in a in a continuously changing environment and feel the same way. So if you did not change at all, everything else changes, and you would feel odd and awkward. So so in order for you to feel normal you need to change along with the changes around you. I guess that's how I see it. Yeah. Do you think that happens anyway, which I'm sort of tying in again, we're sort of going back to this, this idea of um, people trying to explain the change in experience by the change in brain. And I'm always thinking, well, the brain's changing all the time anyway. So exactly. how do you know it's got anything to do with what you're yeah. suggesting? There's, there's constant flux and, and change. You cannot help but that happen. And I guess neuroscience is the study of that change. It, it, it is. It is. And then, um, so, so in basic science, what you always want to do is you want to have, uh, you want to have a control condition, right? So you want to know what you're measuring and, and so as, a, as a fixed point, if you like, and then you, you measure something else and see if, if one changes, does the other change as well? And, and you would, you know, maybe communicate that through a p-value or whatever. Um, and I mean, we, we can do a lot of, imagine brain studies. So you can do brain imaging, um, fantastic studies, um, amazing amounts of, of uh, data, uh, mm. great for AI studies uh, or machine learning. 
thing is, if you want to study perception, then what are you really looking at when you look at the brain? And 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 obviously, what you can do is you can you can manipulate people, so you can put them in a scanner and manipulate. So before pain, after pain, that would be an easy manipulation. The same person in the scanner before and after pain, and then you could postulate that the changes in the brain relates to the pain. Uh, that's been done, you know, so much. Uh, but if you do the same stress or sleep deprivation or a lot of other things that sort of changes the way you are in the world, you would see similar changes in the brain. So maybe we need to have better theories of what what does brain changes really explain to us. Uh, so it's, I guess it's the opposite of what we've been used to in, in terms of research. We always said there's not enough information. But when it comes to brain studies, we have too much information and too little understanding of how to put them into context. Um, a lot of people would use this um, default mode network idea that some of your brain is 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 working constantly and then you have changes that are related to what you're doing. Maybe that's true, but but we still we still need that breakthrough theory that can explain and then hopefully predict what goes on. So if this happened, we will see this, um, and and there are there are some brilliant studies. There are many fantastic um, researchers out there doing great jobs, but the breakthrough is still, uh, as far as I understand, to, to to be heard of. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think that the the waters get really. And and so I'm my assumption there is, you know, your series of articles is is going to help clinicians navigate this world so that we all know what we're talking about. Rather than, you know, this sort of muddying of experience and changes and what, you know, what I saw these changes. Well, what what kind of changes? You know, a clinician, I saw these changes. Their brain must your brain must have changed. Well, it's changed anyway. What do you actually mean? What are you really describing here? Because then if we're all talking a similar language and that gets better, then clearly it's going to be helpful um, and take us down the right path. So I sort of see the articles playing a really important role in that. Thank you. I, I would love to see that as well. I mean, I think that's a really important point and, and definitely one of the main drivers behind the article series is is trying to to clarify what it is and particularly what it isn't. So we we try to reflect it back on a clinic. So, I mean, there's a lot of, so hypogesia, that normally painful stimuli are more painful under certain conditions, for instance, during an inflammatory process or sensitization. Um, I would argue that's the same as we see in a clinic when you do pain provocation tests. So let's imagine you have someone comes in and they have a single um, painful uh, test. So if you do leg squeeze tests, for someone with groin pain and they say that's painful right there then I think chances are that there is something in that area and and I think the theories that postulates it's tissue based and the theories that would say it's pain based or neuroceptive are probably equally well just lead you to one thing is that maybe don't provoke it give it a bit of time that's not the same place um, there was just this week as well, there was a new article out where they tested exactly the groin area and, and looked at different tests. And if people had had pain, so these were football players in, in first division, so um, 
early amateurs or, or maybe early so late amateurs or maybe early stage professionals um, and if they had paid for more than six months the chances are that when they did the tests they would have at least five or six positive tests so different things would make their pain respond and the right. articles so it's it's Matthias Nilsson is the first author and Christian Thorborg I think is the last author um, and and they say that one one way to interpret this is that maybe if you'd had pain for more than six months, or sorry, six weeks, not six months, six weeks, maybe there are more anatomical areas involved and maybe you have more diagnosis. The other chance is that maybe it's about your pain system or the nociceptive system, maybe it's part of pain. Maybe pain is actually a better way of explaining those more complex widespread pain, uh, whereas when it comes to a single pain, it isn't. So that's what the series hopefully should give us a narrative of uh, to, to communicate and to use that those narratives that are used in pain science um, more into sports medicine, more into manual therapy, more into that to sort of understand if we're seeing the same thing and using the yeah. same mechanistic uh, terminologies. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Really interesting because as, as you spoke about earlier, you know, the pain and injury are still used interchangeably um, by people, including, you know, professionals um, when they're completely different things. And, and often, you know, when talking to the, the, the guys in the sports med field about chronic pain, you still refer to, you know, Pat Wall's 79 uh, paper and, and lecture, which is, you know, a long time ago. Um, and, and increasingly, there are people in the room who were very small when that paper came out. Uh, the, the age thing, which always tickles me a little. Um, but yes, yeah, so but it's so important, isn't it? You say people come in, oh, I've, I've injured myself again. I, I've, I've redone my hamstring or calf. Mm. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah it hurts. Therefore, yeah, sort yeah. of cause, cause and effect. OK. And that's, I, I, guess, yeah, that's yeah, I agree with that. Thing. We we had a uh, we had an editorial in BJSM a while back on that um, exactly on that is it and we suggest that we should try and 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 utilise two new taxonomies instead so have sports related pain and sports related injury um, under the assumption that they are a different and b both should be addressed so in the person with hamstrings you could still train the hamstrings but if there's no injury you don't need to take care of healing times maybe you could go straight back into playing or maybe you need to stop you know doing specific things but you can do other things but instead of being guided by healing trajectories you could be guided maybe by what we know about pain and and sensitization that sort so yeah. sports related pain is not the same as sports related injury although the, the athlete could feel it exactly the same way they would say my hamstring is gone again but yeah. but the 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 diagnosis, so to speak, would be different. Yeah, which, which would ultimately lead to you doing the right things, better things, uh, more, more useful things. I mean, on, on, a, on a basic level at the moment, as things are for you, when you're talking to a, perhaps a group of people um, and you're telling them what is pain, what, I mean, what is pain for you at the moment? Where are you on that kind of simple question? Yeah, I'm 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 very easygoing. I think I'm very pragmatic. I would say whatever the patient says. So pain pain is, you know, by definition, I I, I don't disagree with the IS definition. I think it's it's 
thorough. It's a good job. Uh, I, you know, I think the most important bit is that if it feels like injury, it probably is pain. Um, that's part of the, the definition. So pain is something you experience and it usually feels like injury. So from a person perspective, a, a lived experience of pain, you, you wouldn't be able to feel the difference between being injured and having pain. So whatever the person tells me. jump to the same conclusions as the patient has. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting isn't it? because you're right, you can't you can't feel an injury, can you? No, why well, would you? That's what pain is there for. Yeah, exactly. Argue. So you'd feel the pain, but you can't feel an injury. Much no. much like um you can't I mean this is an interesting one when you say to people that you you don't you don't actually feel your body. You, just, you have all these sensations or perceptions. That's something we haven't spoken about, the difference between perception and sensation. I guess that gets people no, excited. I'll leave, leave that to much smarter people than me. Yeah, I think we won't we won't get there today. Um, but those things. So I don't, you know, there's my hand. I don't actually feel a hand. I feel some warmth and some tingling and, and whatever else. But I don't feel a hand. Um, so again, it's it's defining that people say, well, that's been a bit anal, isn't it? It doesn't matter. Well, I think sometimes it does because, you know, that that kind of thinking can be really helpful for some people just to perhaps distance themselves a little bit from what's going on, to think clearly about what to what what to do. Um, so, yeah, so continuing to help people to define, to, to nail down, what are you actually saying here? Seems to be really yeah. important. Yeah, and, and, and maybe particularly what are the consequences of what you're saying? So, so um, the, the the works by uh, John Weinman, for instance, and and uh, Petri, they they did they they've they've been working on this idea of of uh, health beliefs or illness beliefs, and and they would argue that there are like five simple questions you can ask: where, uh, what do you think it is, and um, what is it to you? So, what kind of label would you give it? Why did it occur? What do you think will happen to it? What do you think you can do about it? What if it's left you know, on treat it, what can we do about it? What can you do about it? What will happen? So this this whole idea about understanding what you believe about your illness uh, really translates well. Um, and it's it's been it's been done, it's been, you know, it's been imp implemented uh, directly or indirectly in so many things uh, like, for instance, much of the the work. So Sam Bonsley's work on on uh, Peter Sullivan's uh, concept um, and the whole uh, what would they call it? Um, I can't remember the specific name of the theory, but it, it sort of alludes to the same thing. It's it's your perceived perceptions of your illness. Um, we just did a study, or, or two students of ours just did a study where they looked into credible explanations. So instead of so we we have a lot of these non-specific pains, you could say, um, and they look at uh, adolescents with knee pain. That's a quite common problem. And, and one of these diagnoses could be Oscott Sladder disease. Another one could be patellofemoral pain. One where there is identifiable, uh, relatable causes of your pain and one where, st where there's nothing. So basically the diagnosis is clinical. Uh, you don't need anything else. How would you give a credible explanation to a patient in their teens to understand what that is without saying you are suffering from patellofemoral pain? Um, so we're not saying we know what's wrong with you. We're saying we know what you to, what you need to do about it. Yeah. 
so they did a lit review first and then they did a, a, um, a Delphi with, with a lot of people who know about knees and adolescents. Um, and the article is is out now, so so you can uh, is it, maybe it's only in, in preview, but you can you can see the article about uh, it's it's Chris Jortoft, uh, first author, and Melina um, Kevron was a second shared first author, and then Michael Ratliff is is last author. You can uh, you can read it there, but but what they came up with independently is exactly the same as John Weinman said. There are certain things that people need to know. So not only could we ask them about it, uh, what do you think, what does it mean to you, and etc. But also when we try to communicate to you what is going on with you, we could use the same sort of framework to give you a credible explanation of what's going on. So what kind of label could it have? What does it mean for you to have this? Are there things you should and shouldn't do? What can you do about it? Should you be worried? How long will it take? That sort of thing. So they, they, that's, I think that was quite uh, eye-opening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those questions and, and, and you know, other questions as well. But I, my feeling is that sometimes, you know, we, we ask. Next thing. So there's no, there's no detail or depth. Um, or not enough detail and depth, we actually explore, what, what do you mean by that? What do you actually think is going on? Because unless you can understand their positioning on their situation, it's very difficult to be precise or as precise as we can be in, in what we then say, suggest, recommend. So I think that that depth and detail through those yeah. kinds of questions and, and creating the space and the safety, obviously, to, to exactly. do that. Exactly. Well, I, 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 I mirror that 100%. Uh, um, I have a metaphor to try and encapsulate that. Uh, so again, you would feel comfortable with, I, I'm not treating the person in front of me, I'm treating my concept of that person. So I think it's a uh, knee pain, therefore I will do this, right? Uh, then hopefully the person in front of me will get better when I treat the proxy or the avatar, so to speak, of that person. So my metaphor for that when I when I teach, is that we paint a portrait. So when you sit down in, and you take your history of the patient and you listen to their story and you ask questions, what I metaphorically am doing is, is painting a portrait. So imagine you have two people, um, two people painting a portrait. One, one is Rembrandt and the other one is Picasso. Um, they're both fabulous artists, right? But when you turn the picture around and say, does this look like you? The Rembrandt, you would say, that's amazing. You've really captured me in depth. And and when you turn around uh, the Picasso, people are like, ah, that's really weird. I, I don't think that's me. So imagine you design your treatment on a Picasso, right? Um, yeah. That that wouldn't work because you are, you're doing something other than what the person in front of you really is telling you. Um, yeah. So I like that metaphor of painting a portrait and then realizing that you need to put effort into making as as live a portrait as, as much, you know, the portrait has to be as much as the person as possible because essentially it's the portrait you are designing the treatment for. Yeah, so and you've I, basically got to check your portrait that you've painted with the person to make sure yeah. they can go, yeah, that's me, rather than, oh my God, what I, I literally do that. is that? <laughs> yeah, uh, not, not, I don't paint a portrait, but I do um, tell back. So I do give them, 
I say, okay, I think I understand what's going on. Do you mind if I tell you what I've heard? And then I would I would repeat the story that is important for my uh, advice, uh, the, the, the advice I give or the coaching I will be supporting them with or whatever afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love that metaphor. I think that really, really captures the the elements there that are so important. Um, that That's superb. Listen, um, we've been chatting for quite a while. Um, I, I reckon we might need a part two and three. Um, so let, let's pause it there for now. But where, where can um, where can people follow and find your what you're up to? Um, yeah, I, I'm on. mh underscore dk um, i'm also on instagram although not uh, too frequently and then obviously i'm on linkedin under my name as well so yeah and, and if people are interested in getting uh, access to some of the publications i have uh, just go to researchgate uh, you can find it there and then you can request it directly on researchgate and i can forward it straight from the website Brilliant. I'll, I'll put all those links there um, so people can can do that. And then what I'll do is I'm going to because you referred to a number of papers and, and things. Um, may, maybe I can grab that list from you and I'll stick that on the, the show notes as well. Um, and uh, yeah, then people can um, can check it all out. So uh, listen, it's been fantastic. Uh, I've, yeah, I've really pleasure. enjoyed that. And um, so thanks so much for making the time. Um, yeah, and I hope that I hope the next one can be live somewhere in in England. Oh yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Ooh. it's been too long, hasn't it? I mean, COVID and all, uh, and then you guys left the EU and your country is sinking. Well, I guess it would be nice to see England one last time before there's no NHS anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's yeah. It's. A lot of head shaking going on. It's um, it's not a good situation, but um, but no, it'd be, it'd be great. Yeah, no, fantastic. Let's keep in touch. Yeah, Take absolutely. Care. You too. Bye.